My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors at Grace in the Woodlands, and it's just a privilege and a joy to get to be with y'all this morning. Um, this morning, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 23. Um, in the first 14 verses, which we're not reading, Paul, he really talks about the reality that if you're a follower of Jesus, um, it was because you were chosen. You were chosen before the foundations of the world to be adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. Um, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, you, you, broken sinner this morning, are God's treasured possession, the one in whom he chiefly delights. And that section is Paul just exploding with praise uh, to God for these things, so much so that it's one of my most favorite passages in Scripture. It's just one giant run-on sentence. Um, and then in the section that we're looking at this morning, Paul continues after exploding in praise. He explodes in prayer for the Ephesian church, um, reflecting on who God is and what he's done in Jesus. Uh, so this morning, we're going to look at Paul's prayer uh, for the Ephesian church, asking um, what is it that they, the church in Ephesus, Ephesus and the church here today, Cornerstone Church, what do we really need? What is it that you really need uh, to live a wholehearted life of fullness, of security, of contentment, of hope and security? Um, what is it that if you, if you just had that, like that one thing, if you just had that one thing, it would really make the difference in your life. You could finally be at peace. You could finally rest. You could finally have security. You could finally stop being anxious and fearful and doubting and live with the confidence and the hope and the love and power. Paul points the Ephesians to this place this morning and hopefully us as well. So please read with me uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. This is God's word given for his glory and for our good. Do y'all stand for that? Okay, please stand. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to gather as your people, to hear your word. We pray that we would see you this morning, that feasting with you, that being encouraged by you, by remembering who we are and whose we are, that you would change us, that we would leave this place transformed by your spirit. Uh, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way that that my friends here at Cornerstone would see Jesus this morning, whether they're hurting or confused or discouraged, whether they're excited, um, that we would see Jesus and we would celebrate 
and we would be encouraged by his grace for us. It's in Christ's name we come this morning. Amen. Well, when you wake up in the morning, um, what is it that you see? Do you see a job that only produces anxiety because you feel like you're just busting your tail and no one appreciates or even notices you? Uh, do you see parents that don't really understand you, that you wish they just, they just got you better? Do you see the need to care for your family, um, but it requires more energy or strength or resources than you have to give? Um, do you see a schedule that's so busy that there's no way that you can get everything done, that you can check everything off of your list? Um, do you see a marriage or a relationship um, that just isn't the way that you thought it would be? Um, what is it that you see this morning? Uh, the reason I'm, we're, we're talking about this, the reason I'm asking that question is because how we see, or, or more importantly, what we see, it really informs how we live. Um, there's a, an old movie uh, called At First Sight. Um, it's about this man named Virgil who's been blind since he was three. And he meets this woman named Amy, and they develop a romantic relationship together. And after a while, Amy begins trying to convince Virgil um, I know this doctor, and he can do this procedure, and he can help you to actually see. Um, he can restore your sight. And after initially refusing, Virgil um, finally undergoes the surgery, and it's successful, and he can see finally. Um, his, his sight is miraculously restored. And so for the first time, he's able to see the sunset. He's able to see an apple. He's able to see the look on Amy's face um, before him. But he's having a lot of problems, actually, now that he can see. Uh, it's really difficult for him because he can't decipher between pictures and reality. Um, windows give him a problem because he runs into them and, like, hurts himself and, and breaks them. Um, depth perception gives him a great difficulty. Um, in the end of the movie, uh, the surgery isn't permanent, and he goes back to being blind. But this movie really hits at something with Virgil, I think, for us. Um, during the time when Virgil can physically see, his life is defined by chaos. It's defined by confusion because all he sees is fear and anxiety and confusion. He doesn't have categories for what he's seeing. He doesn't have the tools to process and to navigate this new sight. And so we, I think like Virgil, feel often like we're just living in chaos we can see things, but we don't see them clearly because all we see is chaos and all we see is confusion. And so we too, like Virgil, we can struggle to live in the hope and in the faith and with certainty and confidence and the power of the gospel because we need the eyes of our hearts opened. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened. We need to be given new eyes to see. And so we can get distracted, I think, uh, by the pain and the hurt that we're in. And we can think that's all there is. All there is is chaos and confusion. We become complacent and we can, can become cynical and we can think, you know, what's the point? I don't see God. I haven't heard his voice. Um, he doesn't care about me um, because if he did, why would he let this thing happen to me? Or we can think certain people see us or think about us in a certain way and it affects the way that we respond or the way that we act towards them. And we can get discouraged because we don't see all that's truly ours in the hope of the gospel, all that's truly ours in Jesus. So the reality for us is we always live out of what we see. And that's why Paul, in his prayer here for the church in Ephesus, um, why he prays it for them. 
and why we should really pray it for ourselves, why we should pray it for each other. Because Paul says what we really need, it doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances, though they're tremendously important and they matter more to God than we can ever imagine. But what we really need is found in verse 17, for God to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him, so that you may know Jesus better. And then look at verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul this morning is telling us what we need, what it means to be a wholehearted person in the Christian life, what it means to be full, what it means to be complete, what it means to be whole. Paul's showing us here what it means to to have faith, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and what it means to be wholehearted. And without these things, we'll not be who we were created and called to be. Like Virgil, we won't have the eyes to see and process the world around us. So this morning, we're going to look at the purpose of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and the pleas that he makes in his prayer. So first, the heart and the purpose of Paul's prayer is found in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What Paul says you need more than anything else in this world is to know Jesus better in the fullness that's yours in him. And this isn't done by your being so smart, um, by you being so accomplished, by you um, knowing all the right theological answers, or by you working really hard, or by you being really good. It's done by the gift of the Holy Spirit enlightening your eyes for you. You don't open them, them yourself. It's nothing that you do. It's totally the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge, this knowing Jesus, it's not just, you know, head knowledge. It's not just knowing a lot of facts and a lot of truths about Jesus. It's this full biblical understanding of knowledge. It's both content and it's experience. It's found in this deep and abiding relationship with Jesus. Um, it's knowledge that inflames your heart. You know, it, it's like Jonathan Edwards uh, said this when he was describing something like this. He said, I can tell you that honey is sweet. Um, I can tell you that it's sugary and that it's warm and it's sticky and it tastes good. But you can know if you've never tasted honey before, you can know this, what Jonathan Edwards says, that honey is sweet. But until you experience it, until you taste it and you put it in your mouth and it swirls around your tongue for yourself, you'll never really know that honey is sweet. We, I mean, we get this with, with social media, right? With like Facebook and Instagram. You can know all about someone, you think, um, by just being on their Facebook or their Instagram page. Uh, but you don't really know them. You know about them unless you're in a deep abiding relationship with them. And Paul prays here this morning, um, the most important thing for the church in Ephesus, the most important thing for us is not just to know a lot about Jesus, to have the right words to say, to, to know the right Bible verses, but really to know, to experience, to savor, to take in Jesus, to, to experience him in relationship, to know and to taste, to savor his love and his forgiveness and his grace and this identity that he places on you as his dearly loved children. So this morning, I want to ask you, do you know about Jesus or do you know him? Do you know him personally? Is he yours? 
you know, and if you do know him, is, is it the heart of your prayer life? Is it the thing that you need most desperately in this world to know him more, to experience him more deeply, to know the riches and the fullness that are yours in him? You know, or do we think, you know, the Christian life is, okay, I needed Jesus to get in, um, but now I need something else. I need something more profound. I need something more for my hope and my life and my strength and my purpose. Paul this morning in this passage shouts no at us, continuing to mine the depths of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing for us, the benefits of, that are ours in Christ. That's the stuff that the Christian life is about. It's not, you know, okay, I have Jesus now, and now I can get to the important stuff. Now I need to act this certain way. I need to perform now. I need to do my part. Paul says what he knows is the answer for us, what we need most deeply, what we need at the core of our lives day in and day out is to know Jesus more, to know him better and better and better. It sounds really boring, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, really, Paul, that's it? Just know Jesus better? Um, Paul's answer to us is yes. It's not boring at all. I guarantee you, if you pray this and you ask God to do this for you, you'll not be saying, is that it? You'll be full of wonder and amazement, and you'll be changed, and you'll be saying, this is it. This really is it. I don't need less of Jesus. I need more of him, more and more of him. So if you don't know what to pray this morning, if you're struggling in your prayer life, pray this. Pray this passage for yourself, for your family, for your children, for your friends and neighbors, that you and we all would see and know Jesus more and more and better and better. But Paul doesn't stop there in his prayer. He continues in verse 18 to 23. He continues with this plea. Uh, the way that we're going to know Jesus more and more, the way that we're going to, as the church, participate in God's renewal of all things, bringing the fullness of Jesus into every area of our lives, is by having the, heart, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, seeing life, seeing reality, the way that Jesus sees it. So if we remember the way that we see things, it drastically informs the way that we live. Paul wants us to know the hope that he has called you to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants us to know this morning what we actually have in Jesus because we don't really know the fullness and the depths of it. Knowing these things that Paul talks about this morning is the way to wholeheartedness in the Christian life. So first, we have to know the hope to which he has called you. And what is this hope? Well, if you go back to the first 14 verses from Ephesians chapter 1, um, you can find them there. It's that you've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That you were chosen before the creation of the world to be his adopted family, and you've been brought in and made his. You've given been given full access to God the Father as his dearly loved children, that you've been forgiven, that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, that you're God's treasured possession. So what is this hope? It's, it's that he's called you. It's that he's made you his. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 tells us about this call. It says that, that we were called not because of anything we had done or will do, not because we were attractive by any human standards, not because we were influential or noble, but God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise, the lowly, and despised things. 
So if you've been called this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's not because you are so strong or so wise or so educated or so holy or so noble. It is because you are not those things. And yet God showered you with his love and chose you and poured his love and his grace on you in spite of those things to show the world that your salvation, that salvation found in the one true God does not consist in being those things. So being, being a people of hope, we, we can have this, this hope. And, and what, what is hope? I heard Paul Tripp say it this way. He says, hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. It's a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. If we have this hope in what Jesus has done for us and who he says we are in him, we can actually live confident lives with hopefulness because we've been called, we've been loved, we've been forgiven, and we've been set apart for and by Jesus. So everyone, everyone that you know, everyone that you interact with is a person of hope, whether they know it or not, and they live out of that hope. Um, if you were to come over to my house for dinner one time, um, you would meet my four-year-old daughter, Sawyer, and you would realize that she hates every meal that's put in front of her. Um, we, so we'll like cook, you know, spend all day cooking chicken and vegetables, and you know, we'll sit it down in front of her, and she will proclaim to us through her words and in action that this is not an acceptable meal for her. Um, and what she really wants is ice cream and cookies, right? Um, and so that's what we're supposed to have for dessert. And we tell her, Sawyer, okay, we'll get out the ice cream. We'll get out the cookies. And we'll like put it just out of her reach so that she can't get to it and crawl on the table to get it. And we'll say, you can have this if you eat your dinner. And Sawyer will look at us and be really angry. Um, and then she'll just shove all the food in her mouth like at once. So she can't even like swallow and chew it. Um, and so she scarfs down the chicken. She scarfs down the vegetables because her hope is in getting the cookies and the ice cream in front of her, right? Now I know it's a silly illustration, but it, it really exposes who we are down deep at our cores. Um, our hope drives the way that we live. And when our hope, Paul tells us, is in the surety of Jesus and his love and his faithfulness and his commitment to us, we can endure all sorts of circumstances that are way worse than chicken and vegetables so that we can have the, the dessert before us, the dessert of Jesus' love and his grace and his kindness to us, his mercy and his call upon us. We can bear through all sorts of things, um, all sorts of, of circumstances, and we can invite those around us who know and who don't know Jesus to enter into it with us because we have the hope that we are Jesus's and he promises he will not let us go. The next thing that Paul's inviting us to is to, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. But go back and, and look at that verse. What do you see that, that Paul is saying there? It's the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. This isn't about our inheritance here. This is about God's inheritance that we're talking about. This is crazy. You need to know this. This is wild, crazy stuff here. Paul says that you, follower of Jesus, are God's inheritance. The amazing thing is that we're not that God is not simply ours, though that is amazing in and of itself, but we are his. 
the God of the universe wanted you so badly that he gave up all of heaven, all the worship of the angels. He gave up perfection to come down to earth as a weak baby boy to live amongst broken and sinful people, to suffer and to die so that you could be his, so that you could be his prized possession. I was watching a a TV show recently, um, and the main character goes to this birthday party, and his friend is this really wealthy guy, and it's an adult party, but, like, they're acting like kids, like, because the adult is opening his presents in front of everyone, Um, and he's opening, like, these lavish you know, TVs and and vacations to Hawaii and all these wild and just crazy extravagant gifts. And the, the main character of the show is so discouraged because he's brought this just kind of weak, small, um, insignificant show of his affection and his and his friendship. And he's he's wrestling with what do you get the man who has everything? And what do you get the God who has made everything, that everything is his, that he rules over everything. What do you get the God that has it all? What brings him the most joy and the most satisfaction and makes him beam and sing with joy and dance and explode with excitement? Do you know what that is? It's you. You are that thing that God is most excited about that he cherishes, that he loves, and that he celebrates, that the very thought of you, Zephaniah 317 tells us, that he explodes with song when he thinks of you. And it's not this cheap, like, Disney recreation of, like, the main character singing when he sees his bride. It's this wonderful welling up of joy that when you see your child, you explode in song over them. And when we begin to take that in, when we begin to see that as our reality— that the way the God of the universe sees us is his cherished and prized possession, it changes everything about us. It makes us no longer needing to, to work for fulfillment or approval in the places that we normally look for. We can stop working to gain the applause from our bosses or our teachers or even our parents or our children. It means we can stop working to get the approval of this person, that the words and the thoughts of the people around us, they really don't matter because the only person whose thoughts and opinions matter loves you and celebrates you and is for you and wants nothing more than to be with you. Our status, our achievements, our accomplishments, the things that we normally place our identity and our value in, they don't define us anymore. Because the thing that defines us is the fact that we are God's inheritance. We are his glory. Our status, our identity is secure in him because Jesus died and rose again forever for you. And it can't be shaken. And then the last thing that Paul wants us to see here in verses 19 to 23, um, he wants us to know God's incomparably great power for those who believe. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power by which he ascended into heaven to rule and to reign over all and in all is available to you. It's oddly enough, as Paul says here, verse 22, it's for the church. Jesus was raised to to redeem and to renew all of his creation for the church. 
N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, This power which raised Jesus and which will transform the whole world and flood it with his glory is in fact already available to us. This doesn't mean that we can become conjurers performing spectacular tricks to impress people, but it does mean that we don't live defeated and exasperated and fearful lives. Our circumstances, they don't have the final say in our lives. We can actually live out of a wholeheartedness because that power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power from which he rules and he governs and maintains the whole world is actually for you and available to you. It's actually present in you in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This risen Jesus has set up shop in your life and in your heart. He is dwelling and residing within you. Now, this passage is one of the most like dense and theologically just rich passages in the whole New Testament, and we could just stay here and we can talk about it till next Sunday, um, but we're not going to do that. Um, but I want you to know this this morning, that despite your circumstances, despite what your heart is telling you when you're discouraged, um, despite the difficulties that, that you have, that we all have, that we're going through, that you're going to go through, you need to know this, that God is working all things together for his glory, that he's on the throne reigning right now. And there's not one inch, there's not one circumstance on this earth where Jesus does not shout, mine. And if he were to remove his hand for just one split second, the whole created order would fall apart and crash around us. Jesus is not asleep at the wheel, despite what your heart is telling you. He's not forgotten about you. He's in control, and he's working all things for your good and for his glory. Jesus here, he's a great comfort to us, and he allows us, knowing this, that this fact that he's in control, it gives us the, the hope to live confident lives, trusting that despite the chaos, despite the confusion, he is in control and he loves us. And he promises he's not going to let you go. He promises that he's going to be faithful to you. He promises that he is not going to let you fall apart. And Paul, he's saying here, Jesus is in the business of renewing and recreating and ruling over all things for the church. And the way that he's going to redeem and rescue and renew and recreate all things, it's going to be through the church. So because Jesus fills everything in every way and he's over everything, we're called to to care about the world. We're called to to enter in, to care about government, to care about business, to care about education, to care about poverty and culture and art but Paul is saying that the most profound influence upon the world, the biggest instrument of change, is going to be through the church. The church is that agent of change that God is using and God will promise to use to change his world. And so we don't go out on our own to try to pursue change through a political party or through a social movement or through changing media, although those things are great and are good things. What we see here is that there's no lone ranger in the kingdom of God. You don't go out on your own. You are a part of something greater. You are a part of his church and his family. But what it means is even though there's no lone rangers, there's no deserters either. The church is Christ's body, his bride. 
and though ugly at times, she's this instrument of change and of renewal and glory in the world. So the way to be part of this real change and renewal of all things is for you to be the church, in the church. It's to know Jesus better, to live out of this hope and his inheritance with the power, with the eyes of our hearts being opened. I want to close with this story um, I heard um, last week I was in New Orleans for a pastor's conference and Abby Hutto is a um, the director of spiritual formation at Story Church in Westerville, Ohio and I asked her if I could share this story and um, basically she has a, she had a nine-year-old son and uh, she's at home her son's at school she gets a phone call she answers the phone and it's the principal of the school um, who she's really good friends with. And so she answers the phone, hey, what's going on? And her, her principal friend says, this isn't that type of phone call. Um, for, in order for the principal to call uh, Abby at home, this means that Harry, her son, had been really bad that day at school. Um, this wasn't a fun phone call. So the principal tells her, okay, I've sent Harry home with this packet. Um, it's outlined all the things that have happened today, all that he's done. Um, I've given it to him to give to you when he gets home for him to have you sign it in front of him um, and then to give it back to him and he'll bring it to me tomorrow at school. So Abby hangs up the phone, starts to cry. She's embarrassed, feels like a failure, um, feels like she's compromised their, their witness at school uh, with the families there. She's angry at Harry. You know, she wants to just grab him and shake him and yell at him when he comes home. So she calls her husband, who's away on business, and he doesn't answer. She calls her friends, some of her other family members, and they don't answer either. So Abby finally resorts to praying, um, and she, she prays. And, and in her prayer, she begins to see and to experience and remember God's love for her. The way God responds to broken people, the way that God sees people in messes of their own making and is gracious and loving and kind. And so Harry gets off the bus and he's got this big giant backpack on and he like takes a few steps and he whips his head back and he wails and he takes a few more steps and he throws his head back and he wails. He's nervous. He doesn't know how he's going to be received when he comes home. And so Abby opens the door. He's fumbling through the papers, trying to get the packet, his packet of shame out for her. And he begins to do that, and Abby stops him and says, Harry, before you do that, I need you to know something. You're my son, and I love you. And there's nothing in that packet that is going to change the way that I feel about you. You're mine, and I'm proud that you're my son. Now, we're going to look at that packet of shame together, but you need to know that I love you, and I'm proud that you're my son. That is the, the reality of what we all need. We all need to see that that's the way that Jesus welcomes home his people, that Jesus loves prodigals, that Jesus loves people that are, in the, that are sitting in messes of their own making, that have their own packets of shame, that when we see our packets of shame and we go, this is too much, God, I can't be forgiven for this. I'm not good enough. This is awful. You don't know how bad I've been. Jesus says, I know, and I love you, and you're mine. And when we read in Hebrews where it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, what we need to know is that you were that joy. 
that you were the thing that he was looking at. He was thinking about your face on the cross and said, you're worth it. You're mine. I'm proud that you're mine. I love you and I cherish you. When we begin to see that, when that becomes the defining reality of who we are, that is going to change everything about us. It's going to change everything about us, and we'll begin to worship. We'll begin to rejoice. We'll begin to be gracious and loving and kind. We'll begin to, to be bringing this glorious inheritance into the world, and we'll be the people that God has called us to be. So this morning, who do you see? What do you see? Do you see the God that loves you and is excited about you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you have made us yours, that you have committed yourself to us, that you promised to never leave us, that you have chosen us despite our sin and our failures, despite our own packets of shame, and you have made us your glorious inheritance through the work of Jesus. Father, help us to love you, to see your grace and to live out of it, to see that you are really for us, that you are with us, that you promise to be loving and faithful to us. And may that change and transform everything about us in every interaction with our children, with our parents, with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, and even with those um, who are against us. We ask that you would change us by your grace and mercy. It's in Christ's name that we come. Amen.